welcome friends to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Mocock flavoured podcast. This show is an odd one. A while back I was glancing over some of the old books that I still have that were given to me by Pops and my uncles, and thinking about what we could cover as one of our occasional breaks from Mocock. I've been mulling over a bit of sword and planet action since Phil and I failed to cover the first Michael Caine volume, after two successive copies I had fell to bits each time I attempted to read them. I had considered Almeric by Robert E. Howard, and we have of course covered Danus, the Dark Straits of Reglathium, hashtag fucking Danus, as our so far one and only One Shit Book episode. Check out that show for more info on the One Shit Book concept. I'd looked at the shelves and considered Lynn Carter's Callisto stories, a couple of which I still have, that maybe they were to me from Pops. But then it struck me. There is another Sword and Planet series out there that sold in the millions, ended up counting well over 30 volumes, and has a very curious and rather off reputation. So much so that the publishers of the later volumes in the series decided to step away, much to the chagrin of the author. Yes, we're talking about John Norman's Gore. Let's have a look at the entry from the enormous breeze block that is John Clute and John Grant's Encyclopedia of Fantasy. Norman, John. Pseudonym of US academic and writer John Frederick Lang Jr., whose debut novel, Tarnsman of Gore, 1966, was the first of a lengthy planetary romance sequence. Gore is a world on the far side of our sun, and its barbarous, slave-owning culture is continually supplied with manpower and, more significantly, woman power, shanghaied from Earth. The first book and its immediate sequels, Outlaw of Gore, 1967, and Priest Kings of Gore, 1968, are passable exercises in the Edgar Rice Burroughs mode, as are 4 and 5, Nomads of Gore, 1969, and Assassin of Gore, 1970. However, later volumes degenerate into extremely sexist, sadomasochistic pornography, involving the ritual humiliation of women, and as a result, have caused widespread offence. Though deplored by critics, the series was popular, and its opening volumes inspired two obscure movies, Gore in 1987 by director Fritz Kirsch, and Outlaw of Gore, director John Cardos. In the early 1990s, John Norman attempted to relaunch his by-then-stalled career with a new series, The Telnarian Histories, but this seems to have caused much less of a stir. Crikey. So, who on this earth was willing to travel to the counter-earth with me and take a look at the first instalment in this much-read, yet latterly derided series. Well, it's Miles. Unlucky Miles. I'm going to take a moment here to pop in a content warning. There are themes of sexual exploitation and slavery running through this book, and we do talk about them at some length. So, have a stiff libation, or at the very least a strong cuppa, or oil your neck joint by other means in advance of some head shaking, and join Miles and me as we travel by mysterious means to the counter-earth and try and figure out not only what the fuck a Tarnsman is, but more generally, what the deal is with Gore. Here we are, back in Derry and Tom's, and Miles is back. Welcome back, Miles. Thank you, Andy. Always a pleasure. And we are here, well... I'll tell us what we're here to do in a second. But first of all, how's Casual Trek going? What have you covered recently? Casual, uh, we actually recorded an episode uh, yesterday where we were going over uh, corrupt admirals in Starfleet. Ah, 
And that's so we got to watch the first episode of Picard, uh, season three, where Picard is the bad admiral, and got to watch the one TNG which has Locke from Lost playing an admiral who was up to ah. sh- up to some shenanigans involving an old Romulan a Federation attempted at a cloaking device. Are there any original series corrupt admiral? I, I think in that one, it's mostly corrupt bureaucrats. Mm. Some of my favorite admirals are just dickhead admirals. Like, was it yep. Jellico? Um, Jellico, yeah. Jellico is probably my favorite guest Starfleet officer just because he's such a massive prick, but generally right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Riker comes to begrudgingly respect him, even though he's a massive dickhead. Fucking I, love I, I've, had, I've had bosses like that. Yeah, I also love Ronnie Cox. If you've got Dick Jones as an admiral in Starfleet, you know, you're on to a winner, aren't you? Yeah. Just brilliant. But why on earth are we covering Gore? How did we get here? I, I am surprised. You know, I was sober. I wasn't sure about you when you were tweeting about Gore on Twitter. Yeah. I wasn't sure of your alcohol consumption level. But, you know, you set down a challenge. Someone had to be dumb enough to pick up the gauntlets and challenge back. Mm. And that idiot was me. Yeah, I think I I had in a a brief moment of, whether we call it weakness or insanity or anything else, or simple curiosity, I thought, we've got to look at Tarnsman of Gore. And if I think back to when Pops was giving me books in the 80s, Tarnsman of Gore fits right into the ballpark of Breakfast in the Ruins because I got the first three Gore books off Pops. Tarnsman of Gore, Outlaw Gore, and I think Priest Kings of Gore. I read them in the 80s. When Pops gave me them, he had a twinkle in his eye. He liked them because he said they were a bit fruity. Um, So, you know, for a guy, I suppose, who at the time was in his 60s in the 1980s, a bit of fruity fantasy um, didn't go amiss. I don't think he ever got past the first three. If he had done, they would have come to me as well, and they never did. So I don't know what he would have made of them as they... Well, I think we know, generally, that they descended into more protracted philosophical ramblings that came close in some ways to being the 70s, 80s, 90s versions of an incels charter, just with more body (laughs) oil and hand-to-hand combat. (laughs) But I've never read them all. All I know is them by reputation. Yeah. So I read those first three when I was a teenager, but my memories of them are very, very dim beyond people these days rolling their eyes at the mention of the series. On the other occasion, it drops into conversation on somewhere like Twitter, so I've never really given much thought. But about four years, just before lockdown, about a month before lockdown, we were on holiday in Penzance in Cornwall, and we went in a second-hand bookshop, and there were two gore novels, and I didn't own... My gore novels are long gone. When I moved in with Phil whenever it was 15 years ago or more, and I had to get rid of two-thirds of my belongings in order to fit into her house. All the gore books just went. I'd say yeah. the three that I had, they were amongst the ones that went. So I picked these two up. I think one of them's Priest Kings of Gore, and the other one is Captive of Gore, which, after looking into it in a brief conversation we had, is the story of a promiscuous, selfish earth woman who gets taken to Gore and taught how to be a proper woman. Good Lord. We're not going to go down that route, although I did read a Goodreads review and it was quite hair-raising. But I, I picked up these books from this, this bookshop proprietor and even as I took them to the till, he expressed his distaste for them and made me feel like I was a 15-year-old buying a copy of Razzle from a garage at 2am. It, uh, it was quite uncomfortable, but I thought, no, fuck it, I'm going to get them. 
just in case, because, you know, the podcast was, I think we were maybe only three or four months into the podcast, and I thought, maybe we'll look at a gore book at some point. We had that conversation after doing the dark, we were thinking, what could we do next time we get together? And I said, what? how about gore? And you said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. So all, all i got to say is, go fool me. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Boom. We need to try and fit in as many of those, whatever they are. My brain is fucking knackered. Um, yeah. We need as, as, as many of those as possible. But let's very quickly talk about John Norman. John Norman Lang, his full name, who wrote these. He's a professor of philosophy. He's 91. Still around. And he's the second author that we've covered on Breakfast in the Ruins with a sideline in sex instruction manuals. <laughs> but unlike um, Graham Masterton, I think he's only ever done one. And the description of it runs thus. Imaginative Sex is a non-fiction book by John Norman which includes a list of male-dominant, female-submissive, heterosexual, BDSM-type, sexual fantasy scenarios and suggested guidelines as to how a couple can act them out in order to improve their sex life. Fair okay. play. Let's not kink-shame anybody. Um, no. Weirdly, though, when I was looking at this, given that Norman has got a lot of grief for the gore books in the last 20 years, and that includes being dropped by Ballantyne, his publisher, his recommendations, in a way, are slightly quaint, especially when we think by post Fifty Shades of Grey standards, modern standards. Because the outline continues, it says, In the book, Norman states that one of his goals as a writer is to allow people's imaginations to become sexually liberated. He encourages married couples to use sexual fantasies and role-playing in order to enliven their sex lives and explore the mental and spiritual aspects of sexual intercourse. While Norman defends his male-dominant female-submissive psychosexual theories, it is notable that he does not advise couples to attempt to adopt the customs and institutions of the fictional planet Gore in any literal or simplistic way. Norman places more emphasis on pair bonding and stable heterosexual relationships than in the Gore books, and when fancy scenario whippings are to be enacted, for example, Norman recommends that the man sharply clap his hands together while the slave reacts, as if being whipped. Oh, that's so quaint. <laughs> Isn't it? That's incredibly that is, lame. That, it, 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 it feels almost like he's just saying it for legal purposes. <laughs> yeah. it's, like the, it's like the legal disclaimer at the end of like a film. It's like, uh, no similarities between real people were intended. Yeah. Please don't sue. This brings us to the quite remarkable fact that Apparently, there is a Gorean subculture. And, of course, we'll talk about the first Gore book shortly, but this subculture does exist, and it's apparently worldwide. At least if you include Darlington <laughs> as being in the world. And there was an article in The Guardian in 2006. The byline is, Gore blimey, subservient cult is unleashed on Darlington. If shopkeepers in the suburbs of Darlington have been wondering why they were selling out of chains, candle wax and dog collars, they need wonder no longer. Residents living in the town, famous until now for railways and Quakers, have developed an unlikely penchant for a strange form of sexual domination prescribed in a series of science fiction novels written four decades ago. The practice has come to light after Durham police confirmed they had raided an address in Darlington, after receiving a tip-off that a 29-year-old Canadian woman was being held against her will inside a house. 
They'd also received a complaint from a man in Essex concerned that his 18-year-old son had become involved in a quasi-medieval sect. When police called at the house, they found those participating in domination practices were doing so willingly and dropped the case. The Canadian woman had been trapped in in Darlington. It transpired. Of all the fates, trapped in Darlington (laughs) because she had burned her passport. No offence, anybody in Darlington. No one is quite sure why the Coatian sect, as it calls itself, had taken root in a pebble dash street in the northeast. An offshoot of the Goreans, a larger group with some 25,000 British followers, they live their life according to commandments hidden within books by John Norman. In John Norman's fictional land of Gore, which is divided into castes, couples must ditch any pretense of equality and instead strive to achieve the master-slave dynamic in their relationships. Norman's 1960s teachings, which have spread through the internet, require the slave to be the female, as well as obeying the sexual commands of her male partner, she is also made to cook and clean. Now this article does have the name of the gentleman in question, but I've redacted it. Maybe maybe we should go with like the Simpsons thing. Mr. Black. Mr. Black. Mr. Black, 31, who lives at the address that was subject to police inquiries and describes himself as a master who trains slaves, told the Northern Echo... It works on the system that some women have a desire to serve. Most people think it's a very sexual thing, but it's about every action they make. They do it for their master. I've been called sick, but I don't think what I do is bad. There's no reason for people to be afraid of me. I'd die before I see anyone get hurt. Saying that, the girls will do everything they're told when it comes to sex, but it's all voluntary and all safe. Lots of girls want to come and try to find out about it, he added. They think it's exciting, but it's hard work for everyone. Girls leave when they've had enough. Although there are said to be 350 Goreans who meet in pubs and clubs around the northeast on a regular basis, not everyone has taken to the new fad, nor indeed to the man apparently leading Darlington's unlikely sexual revolution. The local butcher, for one, has banned Mr Black from his premises for turning up with his girlfriend attached to a leash. Wow. Now, I've got to say, I laughed my fucking head off when I read that for the first time a few years ago. I thought the idea, and originally, I thought it was a butcher in Darlington who was in the Gorian sect, but it had all it had all mashed up in my head. And I, I do prefer the idea of it being a butcher in Darlington being in a Gorian yeah, sect. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just um, this must be the I lived, I grew up in Brighton for thirty years. I'm just looking at, it, I go, that's tame. <laughs> that's bloody fucking tame. Yeah, yeah, it, it is all rather quaint by uh by yeah like as as long as everyone involved is consenting willing and there are established boundaries and safe words like you know hey yeah let your flag fly i suppose the moral of that story is if you hear clapping coming from your neighbor's bedroom window mind your own business and let them get the king yep. on <laughs> yep so I mean, you know, I love the idea of them all like having pub nights as well. I mean, I guess you'd see them coming from all the leashes and stuff and people on all fours, but what is and it? And all the clapping. Yeah, what is it about these novels that inspire such maximum cosplay behaviour? Well, we've decided to find out, haven't we? The first thing we need to do, now of course, you're a little bit under the weather, so you're on the tee, but I decided that I needed to get an appropriately Gurian beer going for this. Because it's 20 past six where I am. It's only midday where you are in Wisconsin, but the sun is well past the yard arm for me. And as we had a, a slight hiccup 
last week or a week or two ago when an audiobook company issued a copyright strike against us on YouTube and took down two of our videos. We thought, oh, well, you know, I wonder if there are actually audiobooks of gore. And you found that there are indeed gore audiobooks on Audible in the erotica section. <laughs> <laughs> As this is this podcast's first foray into erotica, I thought, really, this requires some kind of wanker beer. Now, it's perfectly possible that folks think we generally tend to lean towards wankers' beers on Breakfast in the Ruins anyway, and to some extent I agree. But on this occasion, it takes a particular brand of wankers' beer. So I, for this occasion, I'm going with Carling Black Label. Oh. Oh. The beer I only know, <laughs> I only remember from the old 90s commercials. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, the ones that were clearly inspired by uh, Excalibur. Yeah, or the Dam Busters, or things mm. like that. Yeah, my first instinct when I went to our local little supermarket to see what Wankers beers they had was to go with John Smith's Bitter. But even I have standards, so I went with Carlin. I'm really taking one for the team here, to be honest. While I pour this out, we're just gonna have to get to it. What edition of Tarnsman of Gore? And we'll explain what a Tarnsman is when we get into it. I... What edition of Tarnsman of Gore are you working from? I have got the. Delray Valentine edition. Uh, this is the uh, first edition, December 1967. Oh. But this is the 19th printing from March 1983 with some very nice uh, Boris Vallejo cover art where he's still, he's st it looks like he's still kind of working the Frazetta style before yeah. going for his more own airbrushed. The Boris Vallejo ones are quite saucy, aren't they? Lots yeah. of muscles and buttocks. Yeah. Well, mine, on the other hand, is um, a 1974 tandem edition. And I've got to say, it's pretty disappointing. Oh. There are no buttocks. No. There is no, no flesh on, on display. It's a guy with what is just beyond a basin cut in rather attractive blue smock with a bow on the back of a big bird, which we will find out is a tan. So, yeah, it, it appears that from some of the slight research I did, because I didn't want to delve into this too deeply because we just want to talk about this book. It appears that the original Ballantine editions, the ad covers much like this, I think by the same artist. It was only when Ballantine realised that these books were a bit fruity and the Frank Frazetta Conan covers started to appear that thought, hang on about, we're missing a trick here. And this yep. is where they started to get the Boris Vallejo covers in. And they resulted in a massive uptick in sales because Frazetta had a massive impact on sales of Conan novels, naturally. And the Vallejo covers had a huge impact, and they flew off the shelves, even when people didn't know how fruity they were. So yeah, it was a big, it was a big factor in them selling so well. Let's see what what does the back of my book say? It says Volume One of the Chronicles of Counter Earth. Tal Cabot of Earth was the chosen one, picked out of millions to visit the magnificent planet of Gore, where great wild tans scream across the sky, where the dreaded priest kings control the destinies of the warring races. There, on that strange world, so like yet so unlike his native earth, Tal Cabot was trained to the service of the priest kings, to be worthy of the high caste of warriors, to swear loyalty to his city, Korobar, and its sacred homestone. And there they ordered him on his mission to steal the homestone of the city of Ar, a mission that would bring him to almost certain death. Well, not that certain, because there's about 35 no. of these bloody books, 
And frankly, I hate to come up with a spoiler straight off the bat, but that makes it sound a lot more exciting than this book actually oh, is. <laughs> this, my copy, they've definitely redone the blurb yeah. to kind of tie into the much more racy ah, uh, cover. Interesting. The hidden world. Earth could never know of gore. The world always on the opposite side of the sun. But gore somehow knew about Earth, as Tull Cabot soon discovered. Taken by force to that savage world, Abbott was forced to become a Tarnsman, a warrior who could control the great warbirds of Koroba. Gore was a world of slaves and beautiful women, of human domination by the alien secret priest kings, and was also the world of Tarlena, tempestuous daughter of the great warlord of Gore. She waited for the man who could subdue her, the man who would be her master. But was Tal Cabot? That man, spoiler, yes, <laughs> yes, he, 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 yes, he is. Yeah. As we'll find out at the very end of the book. Yeah, uh, that's a, a slightly more pulse pounding description. Yeah, of the action, I think. Now, I think it starts briskly enough with chapter one. Tal Cabot, our hero and narrator, explains his silly name, sort of. I don't know something to do with conquistadors or something. I've forgotten already. His origins is from Bristol. <laughs> It's from Bristol. <laughs> and it gets very amusing later on in the book where he starts to announce himself as I am Tal of Bristol. Bristol. Yeah. He's got a job at an American university as a history professor. He gets a weird letter from his long-lost dad, then goes camping and ends up in a flying saucer. That's chapter one. No messing yep. around. <laughs> no messing around. And then soon, chapter two, boom. Well, he's on gore with his long-lost dad. So that mystery is dispelled within about two pages. He's got his mysterious letter from his dad, and then boom, oh, it's his dad. Hello, I'm your dad. His dad, with a pleasure slave, who he's quite willing to share. Yeah. I, so I it think the most take long, does it? Yeah, the, the most I've ever gotten from my dad has usually been like, I can borrow his Bob Dylan CDs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it certainly doesn't take long for the sexual politics of this book to rear their heads and yeah you're right so quite apart from the fact that it's, we've set up a mystery with a letter from his dad and Norman has immediately blown his load by almost two pages later his dad just being there you know there could have been some kind of mystery to this you know, they could have yeah we could have found out halfway through that his dad was one of these mysterious named characters but no this is dad he's right there boom and he sat there talking to his dad. His dad says, you need something to eat. He says, he clapped his hands twice and the panel slid back again. I was startled. Through the opening came a young girl, somewhat younger than myself, with blonde hair bound back. She wore a sleeveless garment of diagonal stripes, the brief skirt of which terminated some inches above her knees. She was barefoot, and as her eyes shyly met mine, I saw they were blue and deferential. My eyes suddenly noted her one piece of jewellery, a light steel-like band she wore as a collar. As quickly as she come, she departed. You may have her this evening, if you wish, said my father, who had scarcely seemed to notice the girl. I wasn't sure what he meant, but I said no. Yeah, um, <laughs> get used yep. to it, Tal. Uh, oh, wait, he does, really quickly. <laughs> he, he does. Even even though he spends a good deal of his time going, ooh, not sure if I condone the slavery aspect of this planet, but I'm all for it. What we get now is so, so much boring exposition. It's pages and pages and pages of exposition. When you get other... Because this is essentially... We'll talk about what sword and planet is, but this is essentially a sword and planet fantasy novel. 
Yeah. Generally, when you get these things, people are catapulted into a strange world, and then, like with John Carter, he is in peril straight away. In this, he turns up, his dad's like, all right, do you want to shag this bird? No? Okay, let's have something to eat. By the way, I'm going to send you to a teacher, and you're going to spend weeks learning loads of loads of really dry politics about the world of gore. You're going to think it's brilliant, but it's going to bore the readers absolutely shitless. Gore, he said, is the name of this world. In all the languages of this planet, the word means homestone. He paused, noting my lack of comprehension. Homestone, he repeated. Simply that. In peasant villages on this world, he continued, each hut was originally built around a flat stone, which was placed in the centre of the circular dwelling. It was carved with a family sign and was called the homestone. It was, so to speak, a symbol of sovereignty. Change the channel, Marge. (laughs) Yeah, so he really loves these homestones, and apparently Tal is going to get with it too. And so more exposition. Gore is the counter-earth. Women are property. So far, of course, we're prepared to uncover a bit of dodge in this, and this is the first indication of what's come, but it's early days. There are priest kings with advanced technologies that hang out in the mountains in the sacred place, TM. Everybody really digs homestones. All the cities have their own homestones. And several pages of exposition later, if you're still awake, we can discuss any kind of precursors for a sword and planet. Because really, this is it's a John Carter knockoff, isn't it? Yeah. You, you can tell this is written by a professor. Yeah. Because it, it just reads like a non-fictional history book in so many places and much to its detriment. Yeah, he has a terrible tendency to slip into i don't know i don't know what you want to call it world building with some of the descriptions that go on for fucking ages about really minor things that don't add anything to the plot but just slow it down and when you think about the precursors for that i mean you know what we've got john carter obviously but before that john. i think gulliver jones predated john carter i think didn't he um, yeah we've got almerick by robert Howard, flash gordon of course and then rough rough contemporaries mocox kane stories probably pre- well they do predate this by five or six years. Um, Lynn Carter's Callisto stories. By the 70s, you've got fucking Danis, you know, Mike Sorota. There's lots and lots of examples. You've got like Lee Brackett and the the sort of Rhiannon. Of course, yeah. So it has all the hallmarks of these Sword and Planet novels, but it's so dry. There's very little drama, very little tension, very few hijinks, no exciting descriptions of clobber, Although there are a couple of amusing references to why Gore Clobber differs from our own, one of which made me laugh out loud. We get a super boring explanation of the Pythagorean, Pythagorean counter earth theory of Philolaeus, which goes on forever. It's like, fucking hell, sure don't tell. Yeah. And actually, having a counter earth story is one of the th- few things in this that's interesting and probably more original because the only other counter earth story counter earth of course being there's a diff, there's a, an opposite version of earth on the far side of the sun that rotates at the same speed so we can never see it we don't know it's there and people occasionally realize it's there like in um there's a movie called journey to the far side of the sun i think it was a jerry anderson production it was one of their yeah, it's first a, it's a jerry anderson film yeah it's, it's actually it's, that's a bit a bit dull but it's pretty good all the model work is great it's got roy thinness out of the invaders in it it's, it's actually pretty good i loved it as a kid and the movement of other bodies are affected by the gravity of this other thing, even though the cats see it. The only other thing I can think of is Gamera versus Giron, the big sword-headed monster. That was Giron was from the Counter-Earth. 
but there's not a whole lot of Counter Earth stuff out there. So I, I, you know. I think there's one in like the Marvel Universe because that's where Adam Warlock, uh, ah. the, the 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 Elrican space knockoff, is originally from. Right. Okay. Now I understand Adam Warlock actually pops up in the new Guardians of the Galaxy film. That's not something I'm really familiar with. Yeah, it's if you're if you're looking for the character as he is and like the Jim Stalin. The stories which are the most clearly Elric inspired, you're gonna be as disappointed as I was because he's kind of he's kind of adult oh. in this film, which is a shame. But I enjoyed the film overall, even if hashtag not my warlock. Ah, um, I'm sorry, I, I just drank some Carlin Black Label, and oh, it is. Are you okay? Disgrace, you need a little wear down. It's disgraceful, frankly. I can only say that this is maybe beer for people who don't like beer. Uh, so, fortunately, I brought up a can of Thatcher's. So, I'm going to make a snake bite to try and make it palatable. I'll just pop that in there. Uh, so, yeah, chapter three, we meet Tom, his teacher, who basically takes him to school. And again, it's really, really boring. We meet Tans, and this is one of the confusions I had, is he's called Tal, and the birds are called Tans. And whenever I was thinking, if I'm going to be speaking sentences, I'm going to get them mixed up and get them the wrong, you know, the wrong way around. His teacher's called Tom. Yep. It's we got we got Tom, we got Tal, we got older Tal, we got Tans. Actually, the introduction to Tom, his teacher, is quite nice and descriptive. But then we descend back into pages and pages of expedition, expedition, exposition, and world detail. It's so boring. We even get a page explaining the workings of a translation machine. Which we don't need to know. All we need to know is there's a translation machine. Yep. So, but essentially, you can sum up what we learn in that chapter. They've got a caste system, there's slaves, there's outlaws, there's priest kings, the leaders of cities are called Ugars, and there's some bad dude who wants to be the Ugar of all Ugars. And there's got this this system of society which is painstakingly described where if people do certain things they become it's so fucking boring. It's so boring. But finally, when it comes to the Tans, Cabot actually finally faces a bit of peril. And this book is called Tansman of Gore. So finally, we'll get to some Tans in Chapter 4. So it's really super exciting because it's got a tame, a wild tan. And it's the first time it's faced any peril. And we're, we're over 50 pages into this fucking fantasy book. And all he's been doing so far is sitting around listening to his dad explain the philosophies of why women are either natural slaves or unnatural slaves, and it's it's really painful. The tarn is guided by virtue of a throat strap, to which are attached, normally, six leather streamers, or reins which are fixed in a metal ring on the forward portion of the saddle. The reins are of different colours, but one learns them by ring position and not colour. Each of the reins attaches to a small ring on the throat strap. The rings are spaced evenly. Accordingly, the mechanics are simple. One draws on the streamer, or rein, which is attached to the ring, most nearly approximating the direction in which one wishes to go. For example, to land or lose altitude, one uses the fore strap, which exerts pressure on the fore ring, which is located beneath the throat of the tarn. To rise in flight or gain altitude, one draws on the one strap, which exerts pressure on the one ring, which is located on the back of the tarn's neck. The throat strap rings, corresponding to the position of the reins on the main saddle ring, are numbered in a clockwise fashion. Like fucking hell! I'm getting flashbacks to Favor in Danus, the three-page description of a sport that makes no sense. It is so tedious. It's so much unnecessary this, filler. This no, no, see, this reads to me 
Uh, speaking of someone who, who's dabbled in, in like fantasy writing, this is someone who did old world building and went, fuck it. I spent weeks coming up with how to ride a tarn, and you were going to get <laughs> all my workings out. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, he's not. He explains also that the one strap, the two strap, the three strap, and everything else are all different colours. But they're not referred to by the colours. They're referred to as the one strap, the two strap, or the three strap. Why not the red strap or the blue strap? I'm not having it. I'm not having it, John Norman. This tedious explanation adds absolutely nothing. And there are so many. And even at this early stage, it's obvious that if you get rid of them, this book would be a brisk 70-page Sword and Planet novella and still wouldn't be missing anything of note. There's so much padding in it. It's crazy. And of course, to John Norman, this is probably all great stuff. You know, good luck oh, to yeah. him. I'll say the same about him as I said about Mike Sirota. You know what? I've never had a book published. I've never written a book. He's sold gazillions of these fuckers. So good luck to him. But you know what? It's not for me. Anyway, him and his dad have a tarn race because he's he's conquered this, this tarn. And Tal doesn't think he can possibly win this tarn race. Tal on his tarn. Because his dad is at least a Pasang ahead. But he's the hero, so he wins anyway, prompting a rather amusing exchange where his dad says, where it says, uh, By the beards of the priest kings, roared the older Tal as he brought his bed to the roof. That is a tarn of tarns. The tarns, released, winged their way back to the tarn cots, and the older Tal and I descended to my apartment. He was bursting with pride. What a tarn, he marvelled. I had a full Pasang start, and yet you passed me. The Pasang is a measure of distance on Gore, equivalent approximately to 0.7 of a mile. So a kilometre, then? Yeah. <laughs> the uh, unbelievable. Cue more excruciatingly dry exposition about Ubars and name conventions, and then boom, someone tries to assassinate him. Or his dad, I mean, it's not quite clear, and they fly off and get away. That's all handled. This little bit of action is handled in a fraction of the amount of text it took to explain how a tarn harness works, which is incredible. And then they get drunk. And Tal wakes, reflects on his boozy night, and, in particular, his first exposure to pleasure slaves. Mm. I wonder what he makes of pleasure slaves. Let's find out, shall we? I remember, too, the girls in the last tavern. If it was a tavern lascivious in their dancing silks, pleasure slaves bred like animals for passion. If there were natural slaves and natural free men, as the older Tal had insisted, those girls were natural slaves. It was impossible to conceive of them as other than they, they had been, but somewhere there too must be awakening painfully, struggling to the feet, needing to clean themselves. One in particular I remembered, young, her body like a cheetah, her black hair wild on her brown shoulders, the bangles on her ankles, their sound in the curtained alcove. I found the thought crossing my mind that I would like to have owned that one for more than the hour I had paid for. I shook the thought from my aching head, made an unsuccessful effort to muster a decent sense of shame, failed, and was belting my tunic when the older towel entered the room. Well, there's quite a lot to unpack there, isn't there? Can I ask you a question? Did you think that his dad was going to turn out to be the bad guy at the end of the book? Yeah, I was hoping for something like that. Yeah, because like all, all this, it, it feels like he's being indoctrinated into a, into a cult, yeah. which offends butchers in Darlington. Uh, but no. We, we learn a lot here 
about Tal. On the one hand, he acknowledges... So he's looking at these slaves, these dancing girls, the one of which he's paying particular attention to appears to be a black girl. He's he's acknowledging his father's attitude that this girl in particular, he agrees with his father that she is a natural slave, right? Which is bad enough. The next thing is, he acknowledges that there'll be times when she will work buggered, sorry, I mean, I mean buggered in the Northern England sense, which is very, very tired, and aching from her exertions and having to, inverted commas, clean herself. And then his attitude to her is not only that he views her, well, yeah, Dad talked about some people, some women being natural slaves. This girl is a natural slave, but despite the fact he's acknowledged that previous rather grim reality of the life of a sex slave, that he wishes he'd got more out of her than the hour he paid for. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a good thing that John Norman was around the 60s and not coming of age when Twitter was a thing. Yeah, yeah. You can, even though these initial books aren't supposedly as explicit or problematic as some of the later ones, there's still so much going on in that chapter which reveals a really quite unpleasant attitude from the from the yeah. the protagonist. And I think it's it's a problem with a lot of fantasy novels because attitudes of protagonists to sex, sexual exploitation have been problematic in, in, in a lot of novels. Because, you know, let's go back to the Frost Giant's daughter with Conan. He sees her mm. in the snow, okay, he's delirious, but his absolute intention is to chase her down and rape her. Yeah. That's what Conan wants to do in the Frost Giant's daughter, is he sees a, a raven, sorry, a, a red-headed, beautiful Frost Giant woman, and his absolute intention is to chase her down and have his way with her. So it's always been a thing. But, you know, even if we go to the 70s with the Thomas Covenant novels which I tried to reread no. a couple of years ago. And because my auntie, no. Pops never gave me those. My auntie gave me those in the 80s. She read them. She Thank really you. liked them. And I read the first one. And at the time, I don't think it really, you know, when I'm reading it, when it's when I'm 15, I've got to say, I read the Thomas Covenant books. The, third, the second series I found too dry and boring. But I read the first series and me and my mate at school, we read it, and it wasn't until I recommended it to my sister and she almost threw it back at me and said, what on earth have you recommended this to me for? The hero rapes a teenage girl yeah. in the first few chapters, and that made me think, ah, right, okay. Here's I, as a 15-year-old lad, slightly missing a really obvious point here. And I picked them up. I picked up really, really nice hardback first editions in a charity shop and really, really nice books, and I started reading it, and the protagonist, Thomas Covenant, one of his first actions when he gets to the land, as it's called, is the girl who shows him some kindness, who I think is supposed to be 14 or 15. I think so. It's been a while since I've read that the first trilogy. Yeah, he feels filled with the vigour of the land and rapes her. And beyond that point, when he realises what he's done, he doesn't display shame. He's relieved... When he comes into contact with her family, that she's covered up for him, and he's not going to get into bother about it. And I was, oh, yeah, no, 
This yeah. is this is in the fucking bin for me now. And I've I've had a couple of conversations with people who, since who really like the Thomas Covenant books, and they're you know they say, oh, well, you've got to keep you know you've got to read the rest of the books. It's it's about a journey. I just there are certain things I just can't get past anymore. It's there's something similar in his science in his science fiction series where there is some very graphic control and sexual abuse in the first book, and right. even if it's good, it's just like nope in the yeah. bin. It's just you know it's. It's a case of just, you know, pay your money, take your choice, isn't it? That's just not for me, I'm afraid. It's just not for me. And that this is throwaway pulp at the end of the day, that it's got no real kind of pretenses to be anything else, but the seeds of what's to come are definitely there in the Tal Cabot character. But next up, he gets sworn into the high cast of Warriors. He's pretty smug and pleased with himself. Already is ruminating and having opinions about which classes of people that are there at the council he doesn't think should even be there. <laughs> which it's like fucking calm down, Tal Cabot. You, Tal, you've been there a week, mate. Yeah. The Council of Korobar give him a mission to steal the homestone of the enemy city of Ar, because their Ubar wants to be the Ubar of all Ubars or something. And we'll find out what that's all about. But he's like has these kind of imperialist ambitions so okay sure whatever chapter five they outline the plan now we've got to talk about this plan which to be fair to tal cabot he doesn't agree with and doesn't carry out but they've got this hilarious plan where they bring him a slave girl and they say what you do is you fly to their tower they call them cylinders don't they they call the big buildings in the Um, cylinders you fly there and then you take this slave girl sana and you kidnap the Ubar's daughter and you replace her with Sana and then you take her away with the homestone and they won't think anything's wrong and that the daughter of Mel, whatever his face is there, what's his face, Malbinus? Malenus. Malenus, which sounds like a very feminine name, which is why it keeps on confusing me because it sounds like Marlene. Monge to Marlene. Monge to oh. Marlenus. Yeah. Oh, oh. All the lads remember Marlene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the idea and the idea is that she'll get caught and they'll impale her because she's an imposter. But then it's all right. You've got the homestone. You can then just kill the Ubar's daughter and toss her off your town and come back. So the plan entails killing the Ubar's daughter and leaving a slave to her death. But it doesn't go according to plan because, because Tal still has at least some moral standards. And so Sana, the slave who wasn't a slave, then was, but now isn't, thanks to Tal, because she's so hot. She offers herself to him anyway, and he's like, whoa, schwing. And then she asks at this point, why did you free me? My bride price would be a hundred tans. I whistled softly to myself. My ex-slave would have come high. On a warrior's allowance, I would not have been able to afford her. If you wish to land, said Sanna, apparently determined to see me compensated in some fashion, I will serve your pleasure. It occurred to me that there was at least one reply which she, bred in the honour codes of Gore, should understand. One reply that should silence her. Would you diminish the worth of my gift to you? I asked, feigning anger, because his gift is to set her free or something. Yeah. She thought for a moment and then gently kissed me on the lips. No, Talcabot of Korobar, she said. But you well know that I could do nothing that would diminish the worth of your gift to me. Talcabot, I care for you. Yeah, that was quick. I realised that she had spoken to me as a free woman, using my name. I put my arms around her, sheltering her as well as I could from the swift, chilling blast of the wind. Then I thought to myself, a hundred times indeed. Forty, perhaps, because she was a beauty. 
For a hundred tarns one might have the daughter of an administrator, for a thousand perhaps in the daughter of the Ubar of Ar. A thousand tarns would make a formidable addition to the cavalry force of a Gorian warlord. Sanna, collar or no, have the infuriating, endearing vanity of the young and beautiful of her sex. On the Tower of Thentis I left her, kissing her, removing from my neck her clinging hands. She was crying with all the incomprehensible absurdity of the female kind. I hauled the tarn aloft, waving back at the small figure still wearing the diagonally striped livery of the slave. Her white arm was lifted, and her blonde hair was swept behind her on the windy roof of the cylinder. Tall Cabot, dickhead of gore. Mm. Yeah, he's really, really getting into this this thing. It's always hard, isn't it? When you're reading a book, how much do you tie up the attitudes of the protagonist with the attitudes of the author? And if he's trying to make Tal appeal to the reader as a protagonist, this is making him appeal to a very specific kind of reader. Yeah. You know, but I don't know. It's not as if Hull ever kind of comes into, you know, really kind of comes into conflict with what he feels compared to the, you know, the society around him. Hmm. Like, even though throughout the book, he's just like, no, I, I think the slavery is wrong. I'm still going to, I'm still going to use the rules when it appeals to me. Yes. Well, that's a, that's another interesting thing. We'll get to that. The slave caravan. Before we get to that though, there is, uh, you know, the do the thing. He, he goes and kidnaps the Ubar's daughter. Who's like this super tall cloaked figure. He nicks the homestone. There's a mid-air fight as he's escaping. Once again, lacks viscerality and flavour in a way that I would expect from this kind of novel. And unfortunately, everything goes slightly wrong in the fight. He falls from his tarn because she outwits him and she buggers off on his tarn and he falls through the sky. But he lands in a big spider's web in chapter six. And at last, we get a fun chapter. Actually, I think I think I've um, I think I've probably missed up the end of chapter six and chapter seven, but that's essentially what happens. We get a fun chapter, we get the heist, we get some beasties, and we get a cool spider with a mechanical voice box called Nah that I want to be my friend. The, this... the spider was the best character. Absolutely, best part I, of the and book. And then when he goes, I'm like, no, come back. I I want I, I want a talking spider of gore. Yeah. Yeah, it's, this is absolutely great. This spider is 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 shrewd. He seems to have at least a slight sense of humour about things. He's friendly. He doesn't kill rational creatures. And Tal's like, oh, shit, a giant spider. He's like, hey, don't worry, brother. Everything's cool. I don't kill rational beings. What do you need? Let me help you out. And they catch the girl, which is quite convenient. She's elsewhere in the swamp getting menaced by, what is it, a Thalarian, a big lizard beast. Yeah. The other thing that's amusing about this is Tal, an actual professor, keeps referring to the spider as an insect. I think he does it three times. Tal thinks that spiders are insects, so I'll let that slide, though, because this is a great chapter, even though I might be overselling it somewhat, as I'm rating it as great after reading the previous five chapters. But I do like Nar the Spider. Unfortunately, Nar the Spider doesn't last long, <laughs> as no. you pointed out. Nar the Spider should have come back at the end. Now the spider should have been a, a, a running character through this book. It, no, it, it should have been like the end of Tolkien, where like all the all the spiders come for the great battle. For the big battle. Oh shit! We'll the get, big battle. We'll, we'll get to the big battle. What a disappointment that is. But yeah, absolutely. There the, the should Absol- have been all his friends that he's made over the course of his adventures should all team up at the end. All, all two of them. 
Yeah. All but... two of his friends. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, Nada Spider has yeah. buggered off to a Colin Wilson novel. Yeah. Although, of course, we do know that uh, Nada Spider won't kill rational creatures, so he couldn't really turn up at the end to... Yeah. But he could have turned up to do a bit of engineering or a, something. A character of a moral code in a gore novel. Yeah. And, of course, he lasts one chapter. Yeah. Yes, yeah, shame. After he goes, we've got Tal and the U-Bar's daughter, Talina. She gets hoity-toity. Then she gets Demur. Then she stumbles into quicksand, so Tal saves her. Then she sub- submits to him. Then she tries to stab him. So he's miffed and gets a bit stern with her, but stops short of doing anything abusive. Sadly, we find out that had she not been beautiful and regal, Tal might have raped her. Ah, our hero. And in his mind, at John Normans, it appears this is some kind of noble and heroic position to take. It's absolutely baffling. While we're listening to his musings, she annoys him. So he's like, right, I'm going to teach her a lesson. And he actually thinks to himself and to the reader, you know what? If she wants a beautiful, I would have raped her to teach her a lesson. It's like, fuck off, dude. What is going on? Then I, I just want to quickly read a part because it comes back later. Yeah. When when uh, Marlena is kind of um, sassing him. Then to my amazement, she stood up and regarded me contemptuously. If you had been a true warrior, she said. You have taken me on the back of your tarn, above the clouds, even before we had passed the outermost ramparts of Ar. And you would have thrown my robes to the streets below to show my people what had been the fate of the daughter of their Ubar. Mm. I think I think it's a good thing that Parliament doesn't follow those same rules. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. Her, her attitude towards um, being submissive to him gets even more pronounced. Yeah, further on, and we'll get to that. But what is going on here? In his sex instruction book, apparently, there's an extract from that. When talking role play, John Norman Lang cautions that such games must be safe and consensual. And states that hurting and humiliating human beings genuinely and with malice is morally wrong. And he says, rape, as a sociological reality, is commonly an ugly, brutal, unpleasant, sickening, horrifying, vicious act. But when did imaginative sex come out? I don't know. Off the top of my head. I've no idea. Maybe, I don't know. It's, it's just, have a look. There's this sense that he views all of this as, obviously it's fantasy. Obviously it's yeah. escapism. But I guess it's just a form of escapism that I can't really buy into. Like the book came out in '74, and this was this was originally published in the '66. I mean, mm. I would like to give John Norman some benefit of the doubt. Mm. It's just after reading this, I really don't want to give John Norman the benefit or money of anything. Yeah, there is a a question of how far down the rabbit hole would one want to go in attempting to give him the benefit of the doubt and perhaps rehabilitate the reputation of these books? And the answer is, I really can't be asked because no, it's just not very good. <laughs> no, um, especially since like a lot of the, like the later ones in the books go into the idea that women naturally want to be submissive to men. It's just like you say, you say one thing in one book, about the nature of things but then you have the other the entire series of books where you say the other thing yeah it's not really it doesn't match up yeah we've covered my experiences in the third world war on this podcast the three key well four key stories i suppose from that of this um where mocock puts us in the mind of an individual that engages in some extremely morally dubious activity 
when it comes certainly when it comes to sexual exploitation as well as everything else. But Mocock isn't at any point trying to swing the lead and make us think this guy is a hero. He's, no. he's putting us in the head of a really damaged, fucked up individual. Whereas John Norman is putting us in the head of his hero. And it, I'm afraid it doesn't work for me at all. Like I, you know, especially to go back to Moorcock, he famously rewrote the ending of uh, Gloriana. That's right. Because he felt that the final chapter was condoning rape when that wasn't his when that wasn't his intention whatsoever. Yeah, who was it who called him out on it? It was. Um, uh, I think it was. I think it was Dworkin. Yeah, Andrea Dworkin. Andrea Dworkin yeah. called him out on it, and and he he did the right thing at the end of the day, and he responded. He reread it from her perspective, from a female perspective. And he was like, oh shit, yeah, you got a point here, and he rewrote that last chapter. Yeah, so you know, fair play to him. So, oh, I don't know. I mean, we know that too that the frame of reference for readers of this stuff when it was written differs markedly from today, whether we like it or not. But you can only really judge it on how you see it. And yeah, when it comes to that frame of reference, pop songs about shagging schoolgirls were on top of the pops in the 1980s with a band in the studio. You know, All Night Long by Rainbow is about shagging schoolgirls. Uh, you know, and of course at the time, Top of the Pops was actually being presented by at least one sexual deviant anyway. But fortunately, we're being spared any more of Tal Cabot's bizarre musings as they get captured by uh, soldiers from R. And she's pretty pleased with this until, after confirming her identity, the clapper in irons and label her a slave. Because, as we find out in Chapter 8, her dad, the Ubar, Marlenus, on learning that the homestone had been nicked, took off with his loyal townsmen and the entire city treasury. So he and all his family have been condemned to be impaled on the walls. But Tal and Talina break free and do their captors in when the two R lads decide they're fancy engaging in a bit of rape. And Tal's not having it. Which would be fine if only a few pages earlier he hadn't told us that he yeah. would have raped her had she been plain. And then he's unhappy with their morality when she tells him she sends her slave to seduce dudes and get intelligence. I suppose we could consider Tal Cabot to be a, a, a bundle of... Um, contradictions or is he just a fucking tool fucking tool of gore yeah tool of gore tool of gore yeah now we're going to rattle through chapters 9 10 and 11 really quickly and sum them up because tal and tal are a sort of mates now we found out that on gore they drive on the left like tal's native england (laughs) which he observes to keep the sword arm towards the stranger there are diseased folk that travel the land and are shunned much like lepers but with the not it's not leprosy, it's darkosis or summit. I think it's darkosis. Will that come up again? Foreshadowing, perhaps? Yes, darkosis will come up again. Talina thinks he's a wimp for not shagging her when she's chained up. Tal is now going by the moniker Tal of Bristol. And once again, no offense to Bristolians. That sounds very unheroic fantasy. But Tal makes a new friend when he's challenged by a Falarian rider for ownership of Talina and defeats him, but refuses to kill him. Much to Talina's disgust, and they become BFFs. Like, within minutes, they become BFFs. And this dude, Kazrak of Port Car, happens to be the best swordsman in the caravan of Mintar, a corpulent merchant. This corpulent merchant, usually corpulent merchants in fantasy books are always villains. But this is a rare occasion where a fat merchant actually turns out to be not too bad. Apart from the fact, of course, if you ignore the fact, that he's running a massive slave caravan and he's off to sell hundreds of women in the slave markets at the City of Tents. The characters are so terrible in this that just because Mintar seems like an alright guy to hang out with, you start giving him breaks until you remember what his business is. 
But due to circumstances, Tal has to throw his lot in with this lot and put up with the fact that the caravan, taking hundreds of women to slave auctions in the city of tents, the unscrupulous Mintar is trying to buy Tylena off him. It's a tough arrangement, but Hero's got to do what Hero's got to do. And we get an insight into Tarn's feelings about all of this, about having to join a caravan, which is essentially a massive slave caravan. What does he make of all this? Well, the next few days were among the happiest of my life, as Talina and I became part of Mintar's slow, ample caravan, members of its graceful, interminable, colourful procession. It seemed the routine of the journey would never end, and I grew enamoured of the long line of wagons, each filled with various goods, those mysterious metals and gems, rolls of cloth, foodstuffs, wines, and pagar, pagar's booze apparently, weapons and harnesses, cosmetics and perfume, medicines and slaves. Oh, what a life. Mintar's caravan, like most, was harnessed long before dawn and travelled until the heat of the day. Camp would be made early in the afternoon, the beasts would be watered and fed, the guards set, the wagons secured, and the members of the caravan would turn to their cooking fires. In the evening, the strapmasters and warriors would amuse themselves with stories and songs, recounting their exploits, fictitious and otherwise, and bawling out their raucous harmonies under the influence of Paga. And then he bangs on for ages about how he learns to ride Thalarians. It may not surprise listeners to learn that we get almost a full-page description of how Thalarian saddles, tack, and harness work. Epic fantasy. And Tal also, apparently, is getting a bit hopped up on slave ownership. And as a reader, you like to assume that when you're reading a section like the one that we're going to talk about, that Tal is playing a role to keep them both safe. But after two pages of humiliating her, <laughs> abjectly humiliating her, and laughing at her with his new BFF, any evidence of that seems to be dispelled, and one really, really starts to accept now why some folks find these books pretty problematic. After showing her his new slave... Sl- after showing her his new slave whip... <laughs> this is just, I've got to laugh, because it's so out of order. Oh, good God. Her next re- remark astonished me. Use it on me if I do not please you, Tal of Bristol, she said. I pondered this, but she turned away. So previously, this is this arrogant, prideful daughter of Anubar who's tried to kill him, everything else. In the next few days, to my surprise, Talina was buoyant, cheerful, and excited. You, you missed the part where he makes her a collar engraved with the legend, I am the property of Tal of, of course. Bristol. Yep, that's right. And she, well, she digs this, apparently. She became interested in the caravan and would spend hours walking alongside the coloured wagons, sometimes hitching rides with the strapmasters, wheedling from them a piece of fruit or a sweetmeat. She even conversed delightedly with the inmates of the blue and yellow wagons, bringing them precious tidbits of camp news, teasing them as to how handsome their new masters would be. She became a favourite of the caravan. Once or twice, mounted warriors of the caravan had accosted her, but on reading her, co- on reading her collar had backed grumblingly away, enduring with good humour her jibes and taunts. In the early afternoon, when the caravan halted, she would help Kazrak and me set up our tent and would then gather wood for a fire. She cooked for us, kneeling by the fire, her hair bound back so as not to catch the sparks, her face sweaty and intent on the piece of meat she was most likely burning. After the meal, she would clean and polish our gear, sitting on the tent carpet between us, chatting about the smell, pleasant, inconsequential... Fucking hell. Inconsequentialities of her day. Slavery apparently agrees with her, I remarked to Kazrak, 
I read that in, read that to myself in a Roger Moore accent. <laughs> Not slavery, he smiled, and I puzzled as to the meaning of his remark. Selena blushed and lowered her face, rubbing vigorously on the leather of my Thalarian boots. Good God. So she's sub- she's apparently submitting fully to this male fantasy now. Now, yep. Okay. And it's going to get worse in the following chapter. At this point, we're hoping, or I'm hoping dearly, that Talina is just swinging the lead here and trying to pull one over on him. But even if she is, the attitude of our hero <laughs> is fucking terrible. He's a dickhead and I don't like him. But it does get worse because when observing a, a slave market, we get to hear Tal's inner monologue again. So they're at a slave market. Talina is observing some pe- some women that she actually knows from R getting sold into slavery. And she's getting excited when some women are getting sold to nice owners, in inverted commas. She laughs when one of them gets sold to a fat bloke. And Tal thinks to himself, To my surprise, most of the girls seemed excited by their sale, displayed their charms with brazen gusto, each seeming to compete with the one before to bring a higher price. It was, of course far more desirable to bring a high price, thereby guaranteeing that one's master would be well fixed. Accordingly, the girls did the best to move the interest of the buyers. I noted that Talina, like the others in the room, did not seem in the least to feel that there was anything objectionable or untoward in this commerce in beauty. It was an accepted, ordinary part of the life of Gore. I wondered if, on my own planet, there was not a similar market, invisible but present, and just as much accepted. A market in which women were sold, except that they sold themselves, were themselves both merchandise and merchant. How many of the women of my native planet, I wondered, did not, with care, consider the finances, the property of their prospective mates? How many of them did not, for all practical purposes, sell themselves, bartering their bodies for the goods of the world? Here on Gore, however, I observed ironically, bitterly, that there was a clear division between merchandise and merchant. The girls would not collect their own profit. Not on gore. Uh, women be shopping of gore. Yeah. And then, probably the worst bit, Talina demands that he brands her as his property and weeps when he refuses. Yeah. And these, in Tal's own words, are the best days of his life. But fortunately, we don't have to dwell on this any longer either as some dudes pile in and knock him out. Thank fuck for that. Ugh. <sighs> So he finds himself in a tarn's nest. But wait, it's that assassin dude again who tried it on in the cylinder back in Koro Bar. And we find out he is Parker. Parker. Parker? Parker. Parker. Master assassin of R. And he's got news for Tal. Talina has played a swerve. She'll be his queen and rule by Parker's side. And she demanded that Tal face this brutal fate to be tied up and taken by a wild tarn. Oh, no. And he does get taken by a tarn, but of course, his boss, Jan, from earlier, rescues him and whisks him off to its nest, where he finds his gear, the homestone of R. What luck. And this all takes place uh, over... How convenient. Yeah, this all takes place over several pages. Was Talina swinging the lead? Well, I hate to disappoint people and spoil the end, but no, she wasn't. She was just trying to give him a fighting chance. Tal and his tarn, his tarn, his fucking tarn, take flight to return... These, these to- names. Yeah. All these names. Yeah. Tal takes his bird, not his bird bird, his bird bird. His flying bird. His flying bird. 
Tao takes his flying bird to return to Korobar, but en route is distracted by a bit of a kerfuffle with some lals. It's the first time we've heard of lals. And these are other beasties that are menacing someone in yellow. It's the Dark Horses dude. He has come back, after all. But, well, there's got to be more to it than that, hasn't there? Because somehow... From the bent heap of rags that was a fellow human being, a hand reached up to me, the fingers crooked as though they might have been the claws of a chicken. Disregarding my misgivings, I took the hand to draw the unfortunate creature to his feet. should point out, at this point, he's actually killed some of these lals and saved this guy, and it wasn't in any way exciting. <laughs> to my amazement, the hand that clasped mine firmly was as solid and hardened as saddle leather. Before I realised what was happening, my arm had been jerked downward and twisted, and I had been thrown on my back by the feet of the man, who leaped up and set his boot on my throat. In his hand was a warrior's sword, and the point was at my breast. He laughed a mighty, roaring laugh, ah, ha, 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 and threw his head back, causing the hood to fall to his shoulders. I saw a massive, lion-like head, with wild, long hair, and a beard as unkempt and magnificent as the crags of the Voltai itself. The man, who seemed to leap into gigantic stature as he lifted himself into full height, took from under his yellow robes a tarn whistle and blew a long, shrill note. Almost instantly, the whistle had been answered by other whistles, responding from a dozen places in the nearby mountains. Within a minute, the air was filled with a beating of wings. Some half a hundred wild tarnsmen brought their birds down upon us. I am Marlinus, Ubar of Ah, said the man. Does that seem like a bit of an elaborate trap? Is it even a it, trap? It does. It's a bit weird. Pretend to be a leper, and they'll grab him, and then hundreds of then we'll get leapt jumped by hundreds of wild townsmen with their birds. Yeah. And why is he fucking about in a valley getting menaced by Lyles just in case Tal Cabot flies overhead on his tarn? I don't really get it. But we do actually get followed up with an interesting chapter. Probably the second best chapter in the book after the Nada Spider chapter. Where it almost feels like I don't know, at this point. Norman seems to be really invested in Marlinus as a character. And Marlinus does do a lot of philosophizing about the nature of control and central government. and But it's not as dry or boring. And it's a little bit more briskly written. He's not exactly a well-drawn character, but by this book's standards, he's fairly interesting. And he has this philosophy on how to stop the cycles of bloodshed and unite the cities under one rule. And of course, Tal said, ah, but whose rule? Whose sword? Because he says, yeah, the, the, the rule of the sword. Whose sword? Well, he agrees. The Ubar agrees. He says, well, my sword. And Tal, up till now, has generally nodded and thought about the Gorean way of doing things and had accepted, kind of got into it, particularly the sex slave stuff. But now he decides to argue back. Now he's got a problem with some Gorean philosophy of When I was reading this book, when I got to this chapter... When it got to the point where Marlinus is like, this this world which is which gorgeous seems to be run by very Nietzschean ideals of the strong dictate who rules. Yeah. And then you have Marlinus who goes, actually, I want to build a, a, a society of of law and order and common decency. And Tal goes, aha, but you've not succeeded, have you? Because everyone's stronger than you. And Marlinus goes. It's a it's a fair cop. Yeah, this was the point where I kind of said to myself very loudly, "This book." <laughs> well, <laughs> the brilliant thing is, I suppose that whilst he can blithely accept slavery as a given, the concept of central rule is like fuck no. 
the, the concept it's the, it's the meme where it's the it's the comic meme where someone says i feel we should improve society somewhat and then you have the guy saying ah but you live in a society i'm yeah. very smart and i'm like it, it also like, made me think about something else i'd read that later in his life john norman has self-identified as a libertarian of, of course of course he does yeah yeah so this this idea that does. that tal is like is all f- is in, in many ways is a very modern american hero isn't he he's absolutely fine with the oppression of of women but you know what don't tread on me man <laughs> he, he he's he's all for big government when it affects the people he doesn't like but when they ask him to pay more than his fair share of taxes yeah revolt i suppose the good news about this chapter is that after fighting off an appending impalement in classic fantasy novel hero fashion which is actually a first for tal he finds that marlinus offers him a quick death because what they want to do is they want to pull him apart from all four limbs they call it the tarn death which is like the old thing of attaching each limb to a different horseman and then turning it to bits but yep. marlinus offers him a quick death and offers to strangle him <laughs> and he says why would you do that he said well for the love of a woman she loves him after all so you know her swerve is already dispensed with in the the space of a couple of short chapters so he's delighted she loves him after all she was genuine when she said she wanted to be branded by him he's delighted but still gets life is worth living absolutely still gets tied to four times to be ripped apart anyway but it all works out of course (laughs) uh long story short he reunites with his tan and heads for her knowing that when Talina said she wanted to be his property, by God, she meant it. Oh, what a day. What a day for him. So, of course, now he's our bound to get some loving on. And we get several pages of descriptions of ours infrastructure and defences, all of which is really, really boring. But we do, <laughs> we do find out that slave girls carry coins in their gobs because gorgeous don't do pockets. <laughs> <laughs> unless I, that, unless he points out you're an artisan some artisans have them on their aprons that that may have been like the best bit of world building of gore we had but also also the dumbest yeah it's it's just the way the way it's written i i i think i texted around and going okay so gore doesn't have pockets this is an established piece of world building also oh. god hygiene of carrying coins in your in your garb I stopped a hurrying slave girl and inquired the way to the compound of Mintar of the Merchant Cast, confident that he would have accompanied the Horde back to the heartland of Ar. The girl was not pleased to be delayed on her errand, but a slave on guard does not wisely ignore the address of a free man. She spit the coin she carried in her mouth into her hand and told me what I wanted to know. Few Gurian garments are deformed by pockets. An exception is the working aprons of artisans. Incredible. John Norman hates pockets. That's yeah. why I've decided. Yeah, you know what? Fuck pockets. <laughs> Fuck pockets. Look. Fuck pockets and female emancipation. Just get rid of it. As, as someone who works in customer service, if people pay for their shopping by just coughing up the money right <laughs> in front of me, I'd, I'd get another job. Yeah, yeah. You'd, have, you'd need a lot of hand wash. To be fair, we, we spent the weekend in Cleethorpes and Phil spent a lot of time on the 2P machines. And having seen the colour of our hands after working the 2P machines and the amount of hand wash she had to use to get rid of the coin muck... You know, like, Ooh, it doesn't sound yeah. very healthy to me. It doesn't sound very... It sounds like a health and safety nightmare. But anyway, on a positive note, again, the merchant caravan of Mintar is in town. So Tal makes for it and reunites with his BFF Lazrak of the Port of Car. And rather sweetly, 
Lazrak, even though he only knew him for about 37 minutes, weeps to see him alive and reveals that he spent days searching for his body. Oh, how sweet. And Tal almost weeps himself with relief at being reunited with his mate. Which all, all seems a bit seems a bit forced. Sorry, Tal, I'm not buying it. But they're going to see Mintar, and he's playing some form of chess that we get far too much detail about. But he's playing chess with Marlinus. And long story short, they're all sort of mates now. And Tal convinces Marlinus that he should take back the city from Parkour or something. I, I I got confused as to who was attacking the city and who was besieging the city and who had what. It was all, all a bit weird. But the idea is that Marlinus will engage in battle with Parkour and Tal will go to rescue Talina. We're rattling to an exciting conclusion now. I say rattling. We get about seven pages describing the Siege of R. How on earth you can describe an extensive battle for a city at the climax of a book and it'd be so fucking dull is incredible because Tal's not involved in it. We don't get anything from Marlinus's point of view. We don't get anything from Kazarak's point of view. We just get this really weird, dry description of tunnels, walls, warrens, siege towers, but none of the visceral action gets any description whatsoever. It is like reading a history book, a really fucking dry history book. Mm. But we get to the action part. Tal somehow blags his way into see the Ubar-S in waiting, which he thinks is going to be Talina because she's going to be Paco's queen, in a cage. But, oh God, it's not her. It's a trap. There is a woman in the cage, but it's not Talina. It's all a big trap. You've managed to gloss over how Marlinus is really obsessed with throttling his daughter to death. Oh, uh, yeah. In For- this part of the book, it's... I forgot about that. There is a passage, isn't there, yeah. where he says, well, if I find her, I'll kill her. And Tal says, well, I'll kill you. He says, oh, well, if I find her, I'll throw her to some birds or something. He says, well, I'll kill you then. And, yeah, it's. I think it's supposed to be an amusing exchange. But... Marlinus is like, well, you know what? She got jiggy with a free man, so she's dead to me. Oh, well, yeah. Mm. Yeah, not exactly uh, an exciting conclusion that we're getting. No. And actually, just because this book is fucking irritating at every turn, it's not even a trap. (laughs) He turns up, he blags his way into this place, finds the cage, turns out it's not Talina, and then he just wanders off again, disappointed. <laughs> he wanders off disappointed. Of course, the dramatic choice would have been that he then, you know, Parker's assassins jump in the room and go, aha, fooled you. But we don't get any of that. The next chapter starts, I had been outwitted by the brilliance of Parker. It was with a heart filled with bitterness that I left the compound of the assassin and returned to Kazrak's tent. In the next few days, frequenting the paga tents and markets, I sought, by cornering slaves and challenging swordsmen, to learn the whereabouts of Talina. So, the siege goes on for another 20 days. So we've got this, this exciting bill, like, I found her. Oh no, it's not her. Nope. Where's the fucking trap? Where's Parker springing the trap? Where's the excitement? Where's the fighting? No, we get pages and pages and pages more of this dry description of the siege. We get... Uh, Marlinus gets captured. We get three pages of descriptions of how Gorian diplomacy and negotiations work. The initiates of the priest kings of God decide that Marlinus and all his family should be impaled. Parker is like, oh yeah, all right, whatever, sure. So Tal goes on a violent rescue bender, something he should have done a million pages ago, and everything's resolved. And then, because this is a thin John Carter clone, albeit with added rapiness, Tal suddenly gets transported back to Earth to sulk 
but now he might be functionally immortal or something. The end. Kind of, kind of rushed. Kind of rushed up. Yeah. Was I missing any detail that wasn't boring as fuck? Uh, no. Like he when when they save the day, he then fly. You know, he flies her up in his tarn, and um, you know, tears tears her clothes off to you know to to show his dominance. Yeah. As was promised earlier in the book, uh, and then in the space of a paragraph break, he's back in New Hampshire. Yeah. So it's like at least with um a princess of Mars, it ends with a proper cliffhanger. Yeah. Like he gets sent back, he gets sent back to Earth, thinking that Deja Forest is yeah. dying of oxygen starvation. Yes, and you know, it, you you get a real sense of like of, of like actual momentum and just um, there are some stakes. There there are stakes like you know it, it's implied that all this was set in motion of the priest kings, and then the priest kings didn't like him, so he gets sent back by spaceship, no, by magic. Yeah. I've been very, very critical of this book, but I'm still endlessly disappointed by it. Yeah. It's like, you know, you want something, you know, with all you hear about gore, you want something that kind of, even if it's distasteful, you want something that lives up to the to the reputation. Yes. Yeah, that, like that's, that's exactly want... it. Why is something so crap, so controversial? And that's, these sold in huge, huge numbers. Mm. And... You know, Norman himself has written long, rambling letters, castigating his publisher, castigating the science fiction and fantasy writers' establishment for, for essentially casting him out. And it's perfectly possible that the reason these books don't carry any resonances anymore is because they're so dated. Mm. And actually, quite this book is... People, people say that John Norman's a poor writer. And the poorly written. I don't. I don't think they are poorly written. I just think his choices are questionable. I, I think it, this one is just very dry. Like Carl, Carl Cabot as a character, has no character. No. You know, you you have no sense of who of who he is or what really drives him beyond just completing the quest. Yeah. The, the most interesting thing about the end before he ends up back in New Hampshire is that he and Talina. Are I think it's referred to as free companions. Yeah. So hopefully she can take her collar off. Whether she still wants to be branded or not, I guess, you know, would have to read more books, and I'm probably not going to do that. No. I do have a slightly perverse fascination with checking out Captive of Gore, which sounds horrendous, but I don't want to hate myself for having given it the time of day. Uh-uh. I would want. I I once briefly owned a copy of Dancer of Gore, yeah. which is about about a mild mannered librarian who practices belly dancing in the library when it's closed. That's from like the first chapter, and then she ends up on Gore by I don't know magic, yeah. And you know, I'm assuming Gore stuff happens. Yeah, that sounds similar to Captive of Gore. The difference being mm. that. Um, the protagonist in that is a wealthy, well-to-do Earth woman who is um, sexually in control of her own experiences. Uh, independent, I suppose we would oh, phrase oh it no, these we days. can't have that. Exactly. Yeah, and that seems to be the thrust of that novel. So I think that's enough of Tarnsman of Gore. But as a bonus feature, we watched the Girl and Globus canon film of Tarnsman oh. of Gore. <laughs> Canon Films, that legendary production company who were rampant in the 80s and 
made lots of Chuck Norris films and lots of Charles Bronson films, the company behind the Death Wish movies, the company behind Delta Force, Ninja films. They were a force of nature who actually, whilst they created a lot of crap, created some of my favourite movies because they were just so gonzo and so wild and out there. They did a gore film in 86 or 87. And we watched it. What are your what were your notes on the Canon Gar um, movie? I don't know if you if you got this, but the the tall, tall completely sucks. <laughs> like he's a bum, he's a bumbling oaf for like eighty yeah. percent of the film. Yep. You see him trying to pick up his teaching assistant for a wild weekend. I don't know if it's another teacher or a student at the university who's basically bullying him. Yeah. I was really and confused that was by just, that. And you know, he he's he's like this mild mannered nebbish type who wears glasses, yeah. who then just gets magically teleported to Gore. Yeah. Gets involved in the rebellion against um Oliver Reed, who plays the villain, yeah. and proceeds to screw up for about 70% of the movie <laughs> <That's right. laughs> until the film decides, okay, he's a badass yeah, now. He's competent now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and becomes the hero. Ah, you know, ironically love this film i love it because it contains everything i love in a canon movie it's mostly adr so everybody's dubbed so it comes across like an italian or spanish horror lucio fulci horror film from from the 70s or 80s because i mean the, the jock who's bullying him whether that jock is a, a another professor or not is never really made clear it's a, it's a really badly dubbed early appearance for arnold Vosloo, who would go on to be the mummy which I, I didn't pick up on until the oh, second wait, time I watched it. The 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 nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I did not. Oh, I did yeah. not recognize. I did not recognize him at all. Well, you wouldn't know for two reasons. One, he's got hair, and yeah. and two, he's terribly dubbed with with a really bad actor doing a, a an American jock bully's voice. So it's it's got lots and lots of things. So it's like, first of all, what's out? What's out from the book? Well, tans because they can't do giant flying birds. There's no now the spider because there's no budget for monsters. There's no swamps. There's no other beasties. There's no Thalarians. There's no Lyles. Tal's dad is nowhere to be seen. That whole subplot about the letter. And funny enough, we didn't no comment spaceship. on that. No spaceship. It, well, he has the ring. The yes. ring is I think the ring is is like the is a home part of a homestone. Yeah, yeah. Which so magically there's some him to kind gore. of tie to uh to go for him there are no overt musings or philosophizing on sex and natural versus unnatural slaves which is a relief tal is an idiot and is incompetent and bumbling but he's not a dick and he doesn't buy into the slave economy and have a great time with it all which is great what's yep. in well shonky adr quarries sand dust impractical helmets lots of posing pouches Massive 80s backcombed hairdos, which is a canon staple. We get an early example of a pretty great, inverted commas, chick fight, which is where Paul L. Smith, the original Beast Raban, turns up to do Paul L. Smith things. It's always good fun watching Paul L. Smith chew up the screen. That thing that's become a staple of modern action movies since possibly, I mean, arguably the greatest of all time in Total Recall, the chick fight in Total Recall. But this is a pretty early one, but others have been longer, sure, but whatever. Quite enjoyed that one. Comically proportioned swords. A more standard fish-out-of-water arc for Tal Cabot, which is, you know, a bit more 80s. And of course, Oliver Reed 
chewing it up, being Oliver amazing. Reed was great. Yeah, like this. I I really don't like to make jokes about people's um issues with substance abuse, but you have to wonder if Oliver Reed was paid by the was paid by the pint for this film. Oh, Oliver Reed is you know oh, he he's probably thirty pints in in every scene yeah. that he's in in this movie. In in his own way, he's sleepwalking. But when Oliver Reed is sleepwalking, he's fucking giving it everything anyway. And the bits where he's macking on extras. <laughs> oh, the, the, there's the bit where he's like stroking like the slave girl. Then he turns to like the the oiled muscular guy and just then gently caresses his nipple. Yeah. Okay. I'm equal opportunity he's macker. He's com- yeah. He, he's committed. Yeah. He's giving it everything and. I can only imagine that for the people who worked on that film, just being in the presence of Oliver Reed and that's at that stage in his career where decent opportunities have dried up for him and he's just appearing in crap straight to video films. Often he turns up for is he'll be on the cover or on the poster of a movie and he'll be in it for two minutes. Do you know the best part is Oliver Reed's probably watching this orgy going on and he's probably thinking I was in the fucking devils. This is tame. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is tame by sheer comparison. Yeah. And he, he actually, no when, when he's during that period in the 80s where he's always pissed, this is not that long probably before, it's only three or four years after this that he's, on, he's pissed up on the word, appearing on the word. His, his career is, is in the doldrums, is mocked and just generally considered to be a past it drunk who only does shit films he's like a slightly better cameron mitchell by this point in his career he's fucking brilliant in this I've... and he gets screen time because when I, when I talked to robo about wheels of terror we talked about the wheels of terror film the straight to video wheels of terror film the poster massive poster oliver reed david carradine massive the main cast of the movie small at the bottom oliver reed is in it for like 45 seconds at the very end, and there was a lot of that going on in the eighties. But he actually gets some decent screen time in this film. Oh yeah, and he gets I, he gets to be properly seedy, <laughs> which I always appreciate. I've only, I've only seen him in one other film, which is like this sixties Hammer film called These Are the Damned, yeah. where he play where he plays a Teddy he plays a young Teddy boy. If you if he ever gets a chance to see it, it's it's one of Hammer's few forays into kind into. SF. Yeah. It, it involves like tests on like um nu- on like nuclear exposure to children. Ooh. And it's bleak. It is a really bleak film. Yeah. But it's like it's that early, it's that early black and white um hammer. So it's very much in that style of like X the Unknown. Yeah. Um and the two first two Quatermass films. Yeah. You have to remind me what that is again after we're finished because I've uh, I will forget. I'll look that up. Because he was great in those in the early days, even through to the seventies, he was doing a lot of weird genre movies that kind of flew under the radar. He's in a, a a TV movie of a Lovecraft short story that I think was finished by August Derleth called The Shuttered Room, and he plays one of the local like ne'er do wells, and he's just so fucking intense. You know, all he really has to do is rock up and be intense. And he was in some kitchen sink dramas in the sixties. Um, one of which the name of which I forget, but I got it on a BFI Blu-ray, and he's absolutely fantastic in that. It's not. I forget he was. I forget he was an Oliver. Yes, of course he was. He was forgot, the I ultimate Bill Sykes. Plays Bill Sykes. I, I always, you know, I always forget because I'm always just mesmerized by um Harry Seacombe's fantastic singing voice. Yeah, in that movie. Yeah, 
he's absolutely incredible as Bill Sykes. He's fucking terrifying. He's effortlessly terrifying in that film. And quite apart from anything else, a lot of people disregard that film because they saw it on TV, pan and scan, when they were kids and they just remember the songs. But that is a really menacing, scary film. All, oh, yeah. all of the scenes in London where you've got all of the like uh, the wooden slat pathways over the mud between the buildings and the production design and everything and the relationship between him, Nancy, it's terrifying. And if you ever get a chance to watch that like in HD, in full widescreen, that is an incredible movie when it comes to stuff like production design and direction. Absolutely amazing film. And he's brilliant in it. Yeah. And, of course, the other thing that we get post-Oliver Reed is... In a way, the very, very opposite of what we get with Oliver Reed is we get Jack Palance turn up at the end just to set up the sequel. And Jack Palance really does look like he's like turned up and read his script like 30 seconds before and just does a classic. Yeah. You know, he's, he's not in Heartless Lair is a shit film, but at least Jack Palance is super into that and having a great time. In this, he just he turns up, he puts his impractically large hat on and he delivers some lines. And then, you know, we get a. We get the sequel two years later, which mm. uh, I've got to say, as much as I really enjoy this film for being a perfect canon cheesy fantasy fest, the second one is fucking terrible. I, I, I've, I saw the second one years ago. Yeah. So when he just kind of tele, when he teleports to Gore, I have thought that he just magically transports to Gore. It's a general rule. So when I was reading the book, and he ends up on a fucking spaceship. My mind was kind of blown because I was mm. I was not expecting that. Yeah. But yeah, Jack Pounds is like he's in the film. He's taking the money. Yeah. He, he's taking the money and running away from Italy as fast as he can. Yeah. He, he's no Oliver Reed. No. And even though the first one is a canon movie, so it's obviously not made on a massive budget. Because it's made in Italy, there's still you still got fairly big lavish scenes with lots and lots oh, yeah. of extras. The- at times, it's actually quite a good-looking film when it's not just the, four people wandering through a desert. The score is fantastic. Score is brilliant. The yeah, score, the score. Yeah. The score was the best part of the, was the best part of the film. Honestly, yeah, I think in its own way, it's a good '80s canon movie. the The sequel is really bad. It's really cheap. Yeah, it's the comedy sidekick character is absolutely unwatchable because, of course, they decide to give him a comedy sidekick who travels with him from Earth to go. And it's just fucking terrible. Oh, I I thought you meant his uh the the the, com- the comedy sidekick he picks up on Gore, who is um the what, what is the what is the correct term these days? Small person. The, the small person. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, no. In in the second Gore movie, yeah. no, I, I he, remember his annoying mate from Watney, the from the university. I remember travels Watney, with him. King Smith. It's it's then, so terrible. It's so ill judged. And he just go he accidentally warps himself back yeah and now he's killed a bunch of people he just punches the guy who was bullying him at the start of the film and the the, the ta immediately switches allegiances yeah that's right it's like oh yep she is she is traded over like arm candy in one of those old weightlifting comics which uh, i think steve was it steve allen yeah yeah he punches out arnold Voslu and and wins the girl because now he's a gorian man He's of the warrior cast, and he's not going to take no nonsense from Arnold Vosloo. We've already talked about to what degree would we bother to see if the reputation of these books is worthy of rehabilitation, given that, you know, 
they're kinky, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey kind of made a lot of this stuff more open and accessible. I don't know. It's it's not for me. It and it it would entail me reading more of these books, and I cannot be yeah, asked. I belong to the school of thought, which I picked up from my wife. If you're going to enjoy porn, enjoy good porn. Yeah. So you know, I'm I don't really if I want to enjoy good erotica of this variety, I'm going to go to like my local independently owned feminist bookshop and go right recommend me your best smut the weird thing about mm-hmm. this book though and and i understand it may change in later books i really don't know because i'm not going to read them is that there is no explicit sex no it's all just dodgy attitudes it's all just it's just kind of inferred and implied yeah. i don't know I, I won't be reading anymore i don't think unless as i say i i kind of out of perverse curiosity said to see just how bad captive of gore really is it's but when I was it's having a quick checkup to see if the film version of Outlaw of Gore was around, I've got the German Blu-ray of Gore. I got it a couple of years ago. And it's got it's got Outlaw of Gore or Gore Two as a DVD extra, so it's not restored. It's not HD, but it's got it as a DVD. But I can't find it. And online, I could only find a Mystery Science Theater episode with it in. But I found a perspective on the Outlaw of Gore novel on a description for a torrent of the audio book of Outlaw of Gore. And this is quite interesting. It says, From the perspective of the Gorian philosophy developed by Norman, Outlaw of Gore is clearly the most important of the early novels. The novel was written in 67, a time when the feminist movement was beginning to take shape, and it's easy to read it as something of a response to the times that were a-changing. A city run by women is seen as being unnatural, and Norman begins to expand on some of the key elements of the Gorian philosophy, the concept of honour, the importance of the homestone, the dangers of technology versus respect for the environment. Okay, so far, not okay. terrible. And the independence of men and the truth of female slavery. Oh, God. No. Yeah. So, no, not for me. But, no, you, you almost had me. You almost tricked me. <laughs> I was very, cl- honestly, very close. Um, as I said, there was a point where I said, fuck this book. <laughs> Five minutes before that, I, I got to that part of the book. I was scrolling eBay going, all right, can I find a Del Rey edition with the Vallejo cover for Outlaw of... Oh, no, no, I'm good. Yeah, don't do it. And Don't do it. I, again, I didn't do a whole lot of research, but I was looking for the Gar trailer so I could just extract the audio from it and pop it into this podcast at some point. And I could only find it in German. <laughs> Well, I might do that anyway, because I think Gar dubbed in German would be equally entertaining. But on YouTube, there are people out there engaging in discourse about Gar, John Norman Lang, and whether he was ill-treated by the mainstream. And one of the most viewed examples after uh, th- that popped up when I was just looking for the trailer was presented by a guy. I was instantly put off because it was presented by a guy who bemoaned his shadow banning. Oh, uh, yep. good God. Here uh. we go. uh, and within a minute, used the term leftist. So I checked out. I think I saw this very. I think I saw this very video. Yeah, I checked out very quickly. Uh, shadow banning was the first thing. Is like you know, before we get into this, I just want to talk about my shadow banning. It's like oh god, and then he referred to the le- culture of gore. And you know, we've already said John Norman Lang himself in later life has self-identified as libertarian and and has just broadly spent time shouting at the publishing and fantasy writer establishment in very long letters about being essentially cancelled. I just can't pluck up the enthusiasm to go further down a rabbit hole for something like this. Even no. even if there was any entertainment value in it. Yeah, I don't know. 
I guess that's gore. <laughs> that's gore for breakfast in that's the ruins. Gore. Well, you know what? Gore. Thanks for putting yourself out there and and uh, enduring this. <laughs> with me. fun. I have. I'll, I'll be honest. I have not hate read a book <laughs> in quite a, in quite like COVID and family health like issues made me put a lot of things in perspective one of those was i really don't want to force myself to read a book i'm clearly hating yeah. just for the fun of it anymore so you know what is this oh does this count as a one shit book i think had he avoided one of his worst predilections which was filler and dry mm. bullshit this could have been a one shit book this could have been 70 pages long or even a hundred pages long, and it would have been a one shit book. It would yep. it would have doubled as one shit book as well. And to be fair, the only one shit book we've done previously, and I mean, you could make arguments that we've covered many one shit books, but the only one we've formally addressed as a potential one shit book was Danus, the Dark Straits of Reglathium, and that was once again far too long. Suffered from a lot of the same problems, but in Tansman of Gore's defence. It didn't have five typos on every single page and at least one sentence that made no grammatical sense every three pages. And it didn't have a glossary of stupid terms at the end which littered the book. So from that perspective, it was a much easier book to read than The Dark Straits of Reglathium. But from the point of view of his other predilections, which is all yeah. of the bullshit, yeah... I can't say I hated yeah. this book, but it's it's just it's just you know I don't know I think disappointing I, is probably the wrong word. Yeah, that's I I it was just kind of in a way almost kind of boring. Yeah, it was very dull because you you know you you want you know I I'm a simple guy at heart. Sometimes you just want like twenty page fight scenes, like one guy just mowing through tons and tons of uh palace guards and intrigue. All the intrigue takes place off the page yeah. and i think he like he gets into like three fights wins two of them mm. and just keeps getting knocked out and captured and escaping and yeah using about the natures of slavery there's there's, a, there's i would say 50 percent of the doctor who style cliffhangers you you get into the following chapter and it follows through as a cliffhanger yeah but the other half of the cliffhangers don't follow through as cliffhangers at all you just start the next chapter and it just wanders off sulk because something didn't quite work out for him. And there is no dramatic tension. No. At all. And you know what? This is John Norman's first novel, perhaps. I don't know if he wrote any other books before this. And he wrote 33 more, or however many it was. And, you know, these these books may well, whilst the misogyny and dodginess ramps up, maybe the talent for writing something dramatic and interesting and exciting ramps up as well. I just can't be bothered to find out, and I'm not going to bother. No. You know, but, like it's, a, but it's, it's interesting. Like yeah. Or a Corm book where something happens. Even if Corm is dicking about in a boat for a chapter, yeah. you know where he when he gets off the boat, he's going to be attacked by a big nasty monster. But even when he's dicking about on a boat, it's all killer, no filler. Yeah. You know? Um, there is there is absolutely no fat in a Mocock book. And this is all f so much flab in this. So much. 
and as a flabby guy myself, I'm not dissing anybody with a bit with, with a touch of the poundage. Mm. But this book could easily lose seventy percent of its timber, and and not really suffer for it. It's so flabby you could call the book Vernon Manning. Yeah, and yeah, similarly poor attitudes as well. Mm. Well, you know what? Thank you for suffering through it with me. Next time, maybe we'll do something good. <laughs> no promises, though. <laughs> No promises. <laughs> All right, Miles. Well, thanks again for uh, for dropping by Derry and Tom's to discuss Tarnsman of Gore. I'll catch you next time. Yeah. Massive thanks to Miles for humouring me, and not only slogging through Tarnsman of Gore, but having enough goodwill left over afterwards to join me in Derry and Tom's and talk about it. Now, let's never speak of it again. And thanks as always to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Piconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster and Sebastian Weetabix. And our chaos engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Brandon Mays, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Malpertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And thanks, of course, to our crafty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden, and Ray Otis. And finally, of course, eternal thanks to our patron demons. First up, and brand new to the Don Blast, I'm delighted to welcome Alistair Davison. Alistair, many thanks for the support. You're an exalted company. As is tradition, I dropped Alistair a line to see what his history of Mocock is, and where he is in the world. And he sent this lovely reply. Hi Andy, your love and passion comes through on the podcast. I first listened to the War of the Worlds episode. That Jeff Wayne album was a pre-teen obsession of mine and I've stuck around since. I'm liking what I'm hearing. Just finished the fascinating Biker Mania episode, and the interview with Oliver Brackenbury provided some much-needed inspiration for my novel writing. I've been an avid reader for as long as I can remember, and, although I devoured fantasy fiction throughout the 1980s, along with Target Doctor Who novels and various movie tie-ins, I never read any more cock. That was only remedied around 2019 when I picked up a copy of The History of the Runestaff and loved it. I promised myself I'd get more when my to-read pile became of less interest to King Kong, but that still hasn't happened. Best not mention the huge pile of Grafton Moorcocks that were offered to me for a song around ten years ago. No regrets? Not likely. I'm still kicking myself. I'm based in the northeast of England, a town called Washington between Newcastle and Sunderland where I've lived for most of my 53 years. I was an avid RPGer back in the day, my group's adventures often forming the basis of stories that would never see the light of day. Books were, and still are, my passion. There's nothing better than trawling through a second-hand bookshop in search of an old favourite that was foolishly cast aside when I first moved out of my parents' house. I have a fondness, still, for David Gemmell's work, and, along with the likes of Brian Lumley and the earlier works of Clive Barker, 1980s Marvel comics have struck a chord with me lately too. I hope I haven't rambled on too much, Thanks for the podcast. It's genuinely warmed my heart and I'm looking forward to episodes old and new. P.S. I love the beer reviews too. 
Thanks for that, Alistair. It fair warmed me cockles. As it happens, the next show in line for editing is part two of The Sword of the Dawn, so we're just about three quarters of the way through the History of the Runestaff reread. Watch out for that in a couple of weeks. And you're not the first patron to highlight David Gemmell. Our mucker Paul Hillary is in the same camp, and at some point I think we'll have to cover one of his. And further thanks to Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Ian Stead, thanks Ian, I'll buy you a pint or two in Morecambe, Imria, Jenny Stim, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Jason Vogel, and Lee Gary. Lee dropped me a line to tell me possibly the best thing I've ever heard in reference to Michael Moorcock. Lee said, For your enjoyment, I have a story to share. Many years ago, on the Moorcock miscellany page, I asked Mike if I could name my homemade hot sauce Tanalon Tea. He responded and said I could use that name. I didn't expect a response, so I was completely amazed and delighted. Mmm, Tanalon Tea. That sounds awesome, Lee. But onwards with the gratitude. Thanks to Liam J. Miles Reed Labato, of course. I'm so sorry, Miles. Mortmain, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last but never least, Robert McMillan. Okay, enough yakking from me. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. BITR Breakfast of the Ruins Radio is live on Radio Garden via liveradio.co.uk or the web player at breakfastintheruinsradio.blogspot.com. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. <laughs>